I was a, a billion three in debt. Um, one of my earliest memories in high school was coming home, dumping my hockey bag um, on the porch and walking in and watching my father plead with a banker not to force him into bankruptcy. And uh, uh, that just stuck with me through the entire life. I just felt that it was the worst thing to do. Welcome to the Broker Lord Podcast. I'm Derek Walchek. I'm a commercial real estate broker, investor, developer, and landlord from Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm on a quest to talk to brokers like myself in all 50 states. I want to hear about the deals that put them on the map, the deals that went bad, and the lessons they learned along the way. On today's show, we're going to Illinois. It's a very candid conversation with a broker turned developer who literally built a real estate empire, then lost it all. When the dust settled, he was left with over $1 billion in debt. It's a sobering look at what can happen when we risk it all to build our legacy. If you're a broker looking to add rental income to your portfolio, this is the podcast for you. If you're not in real estate, stick around and many of the lessons can help you regardless of your line of work. Go on and hit that subscribe button so you can keep up with the Broker Lord podcast. We've also got some great Broker Lord t-shirts. Who doesn't love t-shirts? And you can have one for absolutely free. Stick around to the end of the podcast and I'll tell you how you can get yours. But first, a word from our sponsor, because they make the Broker Lord podcast possible. The Broken Lord podcast is brought to you by the commercial real estate professionals at Shannon Walchak. Currently, Shannon Walchak is seeking unanchored retail strip centers in growing metro markets in the South and Midwest. With $75 million in buying power, Shannon Walchak is ready to close on the right properties. The ideal centers are between 10 and 40,000 square feet, are located in affluent neighborhoods, have a high concentration of service and food tenants, and can be bought at a seven cap or better. Do you have a center that fits this profile? Then Derek Walchak wants to talk to you. Email dw at shanwalt.com. That's dw at shanwalt.com. I'm very, very excited about today's conversation with Dave Bossy. His story is legend in retail real estate circles. He had a meteoric rise to the top and then took risks that ended up costing him everything. Before we go any further, though, I have to thank my friend Derek Almashi from Chicago. Derek is one of the best retail brokers in Chicago. He works for CBRE, and he's the one who made me aware of Dave Bossy and then actually made the introduction. It took about a year to get the, the interview, but once I landed it, I thought I had landed my Moby Dick. I seriously can't thank Derek enough. Now on with the story. Metro Chicago has long been one of the nation's hubs of power, influence, and wealth. That success created a near insatiable desire for massive retail shopping center developments. And at the center of that was a man who connected the dots and structured deals that numbered into the billions. He has developed or co-developed 83 projects. Candid, inspiring, and quite sobering, today I'm happy to present a conversation with a true legend, Dave Bossy. So welcome, Dave. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Yeah. Tell me about your business right now. What are the things you're currently working on? Uh, the one big project, of course, is uh, very hopeful on uh, completing a uh, cas- major casino deal down in Homewood, Illinois, uh, East Hazelcrest, Homewood. And um, we're working with uh, a tribe from your state in Alabama, the uh, Wind Creek uh, Casino people, to uh, um, build a $250 million project uh, in uh, um, those two towns. It's a 15-acre um, site at Halstead and I-80, um, and it's a, it's a very, very exciting project, but we're competing against a few other mis- municipalities, and uh, we're in for state approvals right now. So. Gotcha. Well, it's a small 
world. My goodness. Well, let's start. Let's start in the beginning. Where'd you grow up, Dave? Uh, Montreal, Canada. It's a French part of Canada. And uh, I, uh, my dad was a two-time Olympian and um, uh, wow. in, in uh, rowing, paddling in uh, Helsinki and Melbourne in 52 and 56. And uh, he um, uh, moved on from paddling to become a very um, uh, big uh, football coach. And uh, we used to go to Fellowship of Christian Athletes uh, camps. And uh, he was a big influence, obviously, in my life. And he actually somewhat invented um, the whole tenant rep game and uh, a um, relationship that he cultivated with a 150,000 square foot uh, chain called Canadian Tire, which is giving Home Depot and uh, Walmart a run for their money up in Canada. 150,000 square feet. What do they carry uh, besides tires? It sounds like they have other stuff. Right, no doubt. And uh, so it was automotive uh, as well as uh, um, a huge electrical department, a huge hardware department, uh, sporting goods, um, seasonal uh, things. And uh, um, appliances. So it, it's a very large chain that carries just about everything except apparel. So when you were a kid riding around with your dad, looking at sites and things like that and understanding how real estate works, were you interested or was it just kind of, yeah, 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 dad. And then at some point it became interesting to you. No, when I got out of uh, university, he wanted me to get into the uh, franchise business with uh, him. And I just said, mm-hmm. no, I kind of like that real estate business, which is kind of uh, was a genesis for my, my career. Tell me about college Where'd you go? Yeah, again, uh, offered a hockey scholarship at Notre Dame, uh, where I um, uh, walked on the football team, tore my MCLs in my knee, and um, the hockey coach wasn't too pleased, so I stuck with hockey for the rest of uh, my uh, three years there. I actually uh, was drafted after my sophomore year and uh, uh, signed a pro contract after my junior year. Um, I was a complete bust out in the pros. and um, Why? Um, just, um, I was uh, a big physical guy that hit people and uh, there was a bigger more physical guy in camp who uh, uh, took me out and he was their uh, uh, stalwart goon uh, uh, (laughs) for the Quebec Nordiques and uh, um, uh, he played for them for seven eight years and I tucked my tail between my legs after uh, three months four months uh, um, decided to return to Notre Dame and uh, um, which I did I was able to graduate with my class I couldn't play hockey because I'd signed a pro contract so I um, uh, competed in uh, boxing and I lost the super heavyweight crown by a split decision which was has always stuck in my craw uh, wow. my entire life so yeah three sports and uh, it was it was a lot of fun but um, I knew it was time to move on what after college where where did you go what did you do I uh, knew I wanted to get in real estate business. So when I got here to Chicago, I uh, lived with my uh, fiance's family and uh, uh, just uh, calling, started calling real estate firms. And I was lucky enough to uh, uh, land with uh, uh, Coldwell Banker, which of course is CBRE today. And it was uh, like an old fraternity uh, uh, back in college. It was just uh, a lot of like-minded sales focused uh, young men in the business. And it was, uh, it was just a right fit. They were, they were great. So you were leasing malls? Uh, at that time, uh, really, we were just uh, getting into the business. And so we looked at these new malls and we looked at listing a lot of land and a lot of uh, buildings around each of these okay. three new malls that were just built in Chicago. So that was the focus. And uh, uh, pretty much at the time, we took any listing we could get. Uh, so we were kind of a little undisciplined that way. Uh, but it was all a learning experience. And for me, coming uh, to Chicago, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. I didn't have any sales uh, training for 
formally, uh, and I didn't uh, know the real estate. So uh, I just set about um, uh, driving every mm. one of the 26 regional areas of Chicago, and I started to map out each of these areas, uh, the vacant land opportunities, as well as where different retailers were going. And uh, um, so I, I, I became a real expert on the actual real estate. I knew every one of the 26 markets. And uh, uh, Cole Banker at the time was promoting that you have a fiduciary with the landlords and, and the sellers. So that's who you uh, sign listings with and that's where your focus is. And very quickly, I, um, in making submittals to various retailers, it was Marshalls and TJ Maxx and Lomans at the time. Um, did you I, do any service merchandise deals? Uh, I did. I sure did. Uh, My with, dad. Uh, Ray Zimmerman. Uh, yeah, uh, right. Ray back in the day. He and Floyd his, Dean. And Floyd Dean knew Floyd uh, very well. We made uh, several different deals because I, I got into the power center business uh, pr- pretty soon at that time as well. Well, that's great. So um, my, my dad uh, worked there basically his whole career. Oh my goodness! And that's yeah, something. Yeah, Murfreesboro, yeah. Franklin, yeah. Tennessee. Yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were to do that again in Chicago, how many areas would you feel like you would need to map? How many more? More or less. What I mean to say is really, um, obviously, with the industry contracting, um, there's really now just four dominant regional malls. And so, again, okay. Old Orchard in the north, Woodfield Mall in the northwest, Oak Brook Mall in the west, and Orland Park area, Orland Square uh, on the southwest. So, really, um, there's really um, four dominant malls, which uh, are the four dominant areas that any any retailer would need to uh, go to. And so, what that's kind of was the focus of people like Borders Books and or Whole Foods and or uh, – um, Tesla, when they first came to the market, that was their focus. Or at least you've been in the retail game since the late 70s. Are there any old ideas that you think you could bring forward or that would be good to introduce to the market today? Well, obviously, from the landlord side, um, location, location, location is the obvious adage that has always uh, been paramount. Um, from the tenant side, um, it really... Um, um, knowing the sales of other retailers is a strong barometer on where you might also want to relocate. So you really do look at your competition and what their sales are. That's a very important barometer. Uh, once you have an understanding of the market, um, it, you're, it's just a question of now using your sales skills to get in front of people because uh, you can't sell off the phone. That was one of the early advice my father gave me. Um, it's very easy to say no on the phone, but when you're in person, it's a whole different matter. Best investments uh, I ever made was plane tickets to various cities to go and sit down with vis- different retailers and sell them on the idea of representing them in this market. You need to get in front of people. Lesson number one, what's easiest, cheapest, or fastest isn't always the most effective. As Dave was just saying, there's no substitute for one-on-one time with your clients and prospects. I'm reminded of a retail developer located in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, He would always skip the ICSC convention in Las Vegas, which is basically the Super Bowl of retail uh, brokerage. And I asked him, I said, why don't you go to this thing? And he said, well, my biggest client, which is a grocer based in Florida, also doesn't attend this event. And so what I do is I go down there for the week and spend time getting FaceTime with them. Basically, he's zigging when everyone else is zagging. So taking the time to develop personal relationships and going the extra mile, it demonstrates the level of service that will often close the deal. 
Well, then, of course, marketing materials, we didn't have any at the time. Um, I kind of um, started using aerial photographs. Uh, one of the first guys, I, I remember taping uh, the streets. and <laughs> Rubbing on, the dots yeah, on the yeah. on the, on yeah, the actual yeah. photograph. Exactly. And, uh, air, you know, of course, uh, Google Earth today uh, makes that unnecessary. I mean, it's amazing the tools that are everyone's, at everyone's disposal today. But um, I, again, sales is, a, is an interesting thing. And um, that was the great advantage I had. When I called a retailer and sent them uh, good information, um, plotting out their existing locations and making very intelligent submittals, it encouraged them to come to Chicago. And uh, that's really was the advent of uh, my whole approach to the business was uh, the demand side instead of the supply side. Right. I was able to get, gain their confidence and uh, um, somewhat invent the tenant representation business here in Chicago. That that was the start of uh, the Mid-America companies. You, you basically saw an opportunity, uh, an unmet need, um, helping the retailers find locations or just giving them more information. Um, so tell me how you leveraged that into your first actual ownership deal. CB at the time had a policy against ownership. And so uh, that was one of the reasons why I was um, interested in, in actually leaving them. Although, as I said, it was the best start ever for anyone in a career. At the time, I was really fine-tuning my tenant representation business uh, while I was at CB. And really, the reason why I left was because um, I could gain ownership uh, in real estate, which was my uh, ultimate objective. And so, and very early in, in the business, I had the pleasure of meeting a, a 50-year-old developer, broker in uh, Chicago. Um, he really taught me the chain store mentality. He was buying up all the old Corvette shopping centers. There were six of them in Chicago. What's a Corvette shopping center? Before Woolco uh, and before Kmart and before Walmart uh, was uh, Arlen Realty uh, was the, a developer for these Corvette shopping centers. So they were two-level department stores, discount department stores, uh, and they, they had, uh, again, uh, geographically dispersed them around Chicago and had six different locations. And so he bought up most of them as well as some others, and he taught me the development business and co-tenancies and how to lay out a shopping center. And uh, uh, unfortunately, that only lasted less than a year. We we're just two different people going to two in two different directions. And uh, I decided to opt out. And that was the initial start of uh, Mid-America Real Estate Corporation. Lesson number two, surround yourself with people needed to grow, develop, and complement your skills. When you're just starting out, partner and learn from those with more experience. Maybe those partnerships will last throughout your career. Maybe just one deal. The point is to surround yourself with people who can augment your weaknesses. I was able to lure uh, a very good friend of mine, a great partner, Mike George, uh, from CB as well. And, and we just prospered right from the get-go with the adage of representing retailers. And uh, I was fortunate at the time also to be a Chainlinks member. Yeah. And so I was one of the initial founding members, along with Michael Epstein from California. Serving the best merchants by providing the best locations was the adage. And uh, all of a sudden, two retailers became six, became 12, became 20, became 50. And uh, we just were quite on a roll Um representing a lot of national chains negotiating leases all over the place, which is when the big companies looked up and said, what's up with those guys at MidAmerica? They seem to have all the business. And uh, mm. um, that, that was kind of the start. Okay. So that was the start of MidAmerica. At what point did you actually pivot and, and do your first development that you actually had ownership in? Well, with Don Levine, I um, assembled 70 acres of land at a critical intersection in uh, Downers Grove, the next town over, and we developed uh, one of the first power centers in Chicago. 
And uh, it was an assemblage of about five or six um, larger parcels. Homart uh, owned one of the larger parcels. They, the city wanted a mall um, on the property. And so um, it, we had a weird configuration, but it was an open-air mall that we developed uh, with uh, Toys R Us, Highland Appliance Company, Cub Foods, Service Merchandise. Um, so that evolved into another center. I met a, a, a Greek developer, Jim Delaportis. Uh, I was representing Highland Appliance at the time, and we met in Las Vegas and he promoted a site across the street. And I said, no, I was putting together another site across the street um, with the Simon Company. Um, he had known Highland Appliance from Detroit um, previously. And so he immediately left the convention on Wednesday, came back and called me on Monday and said he had that site under contract. And he was a very aggressive developer. He put down a lot of hard money uh, mm-hmm. quickly in order to um, uh, gain a co- contractual um, a control of the properties. And uh, that became a 675,000 square foot power center there. Wow. Then I went on with this uh, um, developer and uh, did two or three or four other projects. Uh, and then I uh, met Scott Gundell from Terraco and we did actually 30 projects together. We, wow. we found a money partner, um, Joe Rizza from car dealership fame here in Chicago. He owns multiple car dealerships and Joe uh, and Scott and I, we, we did a lot of projects here in Chicago and we had, we had a really good run. So once you've got 20 or 10 or 20 of these assets and you're holding them, how do you decide when am I going to sell these? Because obviously you sell them, you're going to affect your management business, your brokerage business. How did you make those kind of decisions with them? Well, yeah, it was a very fine line. Um, And to be honest, uh, being uh, the broker in the deal, I really uh, walked that very fine line uh, where I was paid by the developers, but represented the retailers. To answer your question more specifically, I really gave those decisions to the uh, managing and operating partners. And so really, it, gotcha. if it was right for them to sell, that was good to go until uh, I formed uh, the development company. And then obviously, I was in control of a lot of those decisions. So let's go forward into Mid-America's history, that timeline, if you don't mind. Again, uh, Mike and I built a great organization. Uh, we were able to hire some other people from other companies at that time. And the, the brokerage company evolved into a, a second company, Mid-America Asset Management Company. And uh, Dick Spinell and Michelle Panovich ran uh, that company. And then, of course, it was Mike's idea to uh, get into the investment business, too. And so that business all of a sudden became a huge business for the brokerage company. So that company's grown just uh, enormously. They have 50 million square feet of shopping centers under management here in the Midwest. Wow. Uh, they uh, do a lot of investment consultation uh, as well as investment uh, selling. Uh, they've got a large group of uh, there that go from single-tenant net lease uh, projects uh, right on through to power centers and uh, regional malls. So I was there for 20 years. I've uh, sold my interest uh, uh, about 15 years ago and moved into the development business. They've gone on and done some how, wonderful things. How many folks work there? Do you have any idea? They have, uh, between the two combined companies, I'd say close to 200 people now. Okay. Yeah. That's great. That's a great legacy. I, I can remember uh, many ICSCs as a young tenant rep broke or you know, going to the Vegas show and seeing all these big booths and seeing y'all's booths. Best, best years of my life. I, I 40, really? 40 years. This year was the first year uh, I've ever missed the ICSC in Vegas. It's so wonderful to go back and see so many friends I've made over the years, uh, clients. Uh, it's been just um, uh, an unbelievable time for, for me and for my family, which um, I've got four of my five children all in the real estate business now too. So That's great. What is the deal that you are most proud of that you've done? Well, I evolved um, over time um, through the power centers um, um, into some lifestyle opportunities, uh, but really 
uh, into the hotel uh, business. And unfortunately- Why did you, okay, why did you yeah. want to get into the hotel business? Well, one of the last power centers uh, that we did was so far outside of Chicago in Yorkville, Illinois, and uh, uh, co-developed that project uh, with Harlem Irving Properties. And we thought we were doing everything right. We had a lifestyle component that we were reserving for the future because it was a very green area. And uh, we had the best of everybody. We had Home Depot, we had Target, we had Kohl's, uh, we had Dick's Sporting Goods, we had PetSmart uh, and Marshalls. We had just really an amazing lineup of uh, big players and uh, uh, smaller retailers, of course. And we were selling everybody on the future, the growth. We mapped out all the subdivisions that had already been approved, and uh, we were able to sell based on the growth. Well, of course, 08 hit and the growth never occurred, and that whole shopping center, unfortunately, uh, fell to the wayside. But um, so I had to go so far out to build a uh, uh, the last of the sh- power centers in Chicago that I kept thinking, how can I? What's next? Uh, what's next? And uh, um, so I was approached by another uh, young fella who um, had uh, focused in on the hotel business, and he uh, convinced me that with some government assistance could uh, create new four star hotel opportunities. And for the previous two decades, there were just a lot of innovations in the hotel industry with uh, suite hotels and uh, extended stay hotels and uh, really B and C class hotels. And so if we could co-brand it with a uh, named restaurant like Gibson's uh, and we could, uh, uh, again, flag it with a uh, Westin or uh, um, a first class uh, four-star quality hotel brand Mm -hmm. uh, that we could uh, uh, go into some of the strong uh, office communities uh, and restaurant communities, and we could uh, build a new prototype. And so uh, we uh, went about building a couple of $100 and $200 million uh, Western hotels on the North Shore of Chicago and here out in the Oak Brook Lombard area. Did you uh, do the, you did the one here one in town? Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. Yep. Uh, 500 rooms with a 50,000 square foot convention center attached to it. It's a massive uh, building. Yes. And uh, of course, we did 400 rooms with 40,000 square feet up on the North Shore. And uh, then we came back to the Hoyer area and built a 500 176 room hotel, which we branded um, um, as an intercontinental, but uh, uh, through the bankruptcy, it was purchased by Lowe's, and that is their um, flagship here in Chicago. So we had all the drivers between um, retail, restaurants, convention centers, and uh, we went and built, bought the uh, Hyatt Hotel in Schaumburg. We bought uh, a Holiday Inn in Naperville, which we were rebranding to a Marriott. We bought uh, uh, the Sheraton uh, by the LAX airport. Uh, we owned the Ambassador East Hotel. Um, uh, in the Gold Coast area of Chicago. Uh, and so we, we bought a lot of uh, and built a lot of uh, four-star, four four-and-a-half-star uh, quality hotels. And uh, those remain today. They provide a lot of tax revenue uh, for the uh, cities. They uh, employ a lot of people. Those are my most proud uh, projects. Uh, I got a little bored with the long horizontal retail um, <laughs> things. And so to, to go uh, vertical and watch these uh, skyscrapers being built, uh, 20, 30-story buildings, was uh, just a joy to me to see that kind of construction. And development, to me, uh, was was everything. Just watching buildings being built and jobs being uh, created and uh, um, taxes being generated, to me, it was uh, a great joy to, to serve the communities in that fashion. I remember... Uh- uh, the very first shopping center that I developed in Birmingham um, when we went under construction and uh, took my kids to go see, you know, little, they were little at the time and just to walk around, 
you know, and say, okay, here's the slab. This is going to be like this. Did you have some of those experiences with your kids? Yes, absolutely. And um, it was um, just the pride of, of creation uh-huh. and um, and just uh, hopefully instilling a little bit of uh, motivation on their parts just to see some of this stuff. And, um, you know, they've gone on and they've done wonderful in a lot of their careers. And I, I think that was motivating to them just to uh, see my excitement and um, watch those buildings being built. Yeah. Okay. So that's, those are, that's a deal that you're most proud of. What is a deal that you wish that you hadn't done? Those same hotels. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> because uh, at the end of the day, um, we, uh, uh, there's many great lessons to be learned. Um, we had uh, an opportunity to fund these things. Uh, we had construction lenders offering us money left, right, and center, uh, 80%, 90% funding. And uh, we had another friend of the family, so to speak, that was a very wealthy gentleman here in Chicago that lent us a, a lot of money on a mezzanine basis. So we really didn't need equity. Uh, and I, of course, being uh, not the brightest finance, I decided to fund these projects uh, by signing on all of that debt. And uh, it was recourse debt uh, for the most part, uh, some limited, some full. And um, all of those projects, unfortunately, came back to bury me when 08 happened and uh, uh, the music stopped and uh, um, I've paid a very dear price for 12 years. Lesson three, no money down can be a trap. Warning, warning, warning. Um, You know, if you're early in your career and you're trying to, to get a foothold of some equity, sometimes no money down is the way you have to go. But as you get older and you build up more assets, you should run from no money down. So many of us in the industry have our own horror stories about the financial crisis. If you don't know, it was the perfect storm caused in part by a never-ending list of banks and investment houses that took advantage of easy credit, aggressive lending practices, over-leveraging, and lenders being forced to mark to market when there was no functioning market in place. When the cards began to fall, it led to a worldwide failure of financial networks. Countless investors, big and small, were crushed as banks called in loans, seized assets, and fortunes were literally lost. Uh, it's been a very, very tough road. I've had to carry $100 million in judgments against me, which mm. I've been able to settle 95% of them privately. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the day, um, I'm actually going to take a lot of pride in the next uh, weeks and months to come when uh, after 12 years, I've been able to settle everything privately and not have to file bankruptcy and run and hide. I, I just felt that was the worst thing to do. And, and, and it, it, my children have seen how difficult it's been on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost uh, ended my career. Um, I, my, my reputation to me was everything, and I think, I hope, I pray that um, I've been able to uh, uh, keep a, a great reputation. That's amazing. Most people don't have the stomach, I don't think, to put themselves in a place where that they're going to have to basically spend 12 years digging out. How did you have the strength to fight that battle for 12 years? Well, many of the bankruptcy attorneys that we talked to said that, it was going to be a three-year fight, and when they looked down the list of assets, they said, there's always going to be one or two or three guys you're never going to be able to settle with, and uh, uh, you might as well file, file bankruptcy immediately. Why waste the three years? And so that was the advice my partners took. I was a, a billion three in debt. Um, it was it was a, just such an exciting time for me that I, I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to fight this thing for three years, and, and, and I think I'll be able to... Maybe I overrated my salesmanship, but I, I thought I could finalize uh, with uh, those last three guys in three years. So I thought, you know, we're going into this recession. I'm gonna, I'm gonna 
lasted out for three years. Well, three became four, became five, became 12. And at the end of the day, uh, I never, I, in hindsight, I probably should have. Uh, I mean, this country does give us the, that do-over opportunity by filing bankruptcy. Um, but again, I'll go back to my father. One of my earliest memories in high school was coming home, dumping my hockey bag um, on the porch and walking in and watching my father plead with a banker not to force him into bankruptcy. And uh, uh, that just stuck with me uh, my entire life. I just felt that it was the worst thing to do. And again, in hindsight, it probably was the worst uh, decision I ever made. Uh, but, um, um, you know, again, uh, we all have our paths to travel. And um, this uh, was my path to travel. And um, I've just accepted it. And I had to um, address every aspect of my life from an emotional, physical, mental, spiritual. Um, uh, so I sought help in every one of those ways. And so I joined a church group. I um, saw a psychologist. I uh, started working out, lost uh, 25 pounds. That's what got me through it, um, just being strong in all uh, aspects of it. And uh, um, every one of them helped me uh, get through a very, very difficult time because uh, when the phone rings or when someone shows at the door, your stomach with drops. A summons, uh, you just you want to run and hide and cry. And uh, um, but at the end of the day, um, you know the the depositions were always difficult. The uh, the fear uh, overtakes you many mm -hmm. times. Uh, again, I, w I was clear in my resolve not to um, file, and uh, to this day, um, it is my mantra. And unfortunately, I just I hope the heck at 66 <laughs> years old, I don't go to my grave uh, carrying that mantra. I, I think I'm very close uh, okay. to finalizing uh, all $100 million and judgments against me. It'll be a happy day. <laughs> I know. I know it will. So what would you tell your 20-something self, you know, just getting into business? What are one or two pieces of advice that you'd tell yourself? If I had it all over to do again, even through this past decade, I would have uh, really um, uh, switched my game into uh, apartments and or industrial like uh, some of my friends have. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, I still think there's opportunity um, in, in uh, those industries. Um, I think retail is going to be a very, very tough go with the Amazon effect uh, here. As I understand it, we've got 15 square feet per capita here in the United States compared to five square feet per capita in Australia and Great Britain and other countries. So I think we are oversaturated in retail, especially now with Amazon being mm -hmm. the biggest, baddest big box in town. So I, I think there's going to be limited opportunities, but there'll always be opportunities. And I think office is going to be uh, hard to go too. I mm -hmm. just, I I just uh, sold an $86 million office building um, on Michigan Avenue to uh, a firm out of Tel Aviv. And uh, I've now since completed deals uh, with Vans on the ground floor, uh, uh, Bank of America. We restructured a whole new 10-year deal with them and uh, we did uh, the first Chick-fil-A on Michigan Avenue the Magnificent Mile yeah. uh, and on the second floor and uh, we created an, in essence $100 million of value for them on just the retail the first two levels so uh, the office is going to be a tough go for them um, and uh, they've got 300,000 square feet 100,000 still vacant it'll be a great redevelopment project uh, for them mm -hmm. alright so last question um, they pass a law in in Illinois that says Dave Bossy cannot be in any sort of real estate ever again. Okay. What what other industry besides real estate 
interests you? Uh, for me, um, I'm limited in my skill set, uh, and uh, I always said I was the dumbest guy in the room. When I um, uh, had meetings with 10 people in a room, and I had architects and con- construction people and finance people and bankers, and I-, I looked around the room, and I always said I'm the dumbest guy in the room, but I knew what my gift was, and I was the guy that got them in the room. And so um, I think that there's a great uh, lesson there that you don't have to be the brightest guy in any uh, industry. You just have to be the guy that gets them in the room. Yeah, there's always incredible opportunities um, everywhere, but uh, uh, just being a light on your feet and seeing opportunity, having having an open spirit, an open mind, uh, uh, and open ideas, you know, uh, just uh, um, I think will give you opportunities in any industry anywhere. But uh, being actively curious, actively curious is a great way to put it. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. This has been great, and I want to thank you um, for being so honest about. Um, just the struggles that you've had the past 12 years. I think that's so important because, you know, in our business, in development, whenever you're using debt as a, as the lion's share of the, of the equity or of the, of the capital, you are in danger. Um, you may not realize it, you know, cause you may be in a market that's growing and will grow for another 10 years, but at some point things do change. They always do. Um, and if you have a lot of debt, you're always at risk of that. And, people who are listening to this will eventually probably stumble into some of those situations. So I think hearing the lessons on how you got yourself mentally, physically, spiritually fit to fight the fight that you have, um, I think it's really impressive and, and it's awesome. Um, as you said, every decade there seems to be something that uh, snaps up and bites somebody in the butt and um, uh, you just need to be prepared for it. And you can't, you can't be more prepared other than structuring your debt and your equity properly. And that was unfortunately a very difficult lesson for me to learn. But I would imagine in that situation, your ego kind of goes away. Was there some freedom in that that you felt? I I wouldn't call it freedom. Um, It is funny because in praying at night um, and at various um, funerals and church functions, uh, it's just amazing to me what comes to me. And uh, every time it comes to me, and it's humility. I needed to learn humility. What was I supposed to learn? I, I, I ask God every day, you know, use me. Pray, you know, I, 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 I still have a gift. What, you know, I, I know my gift, you know, use me to, to do some good more in the world. And, um, and, and uh, what was I meant to learn? What was I meant to learn? And uh, this last time, about a month ago, I was at a funeral, and I was very, very intense in prayer. And uh, the next morning, I have a reading that comes to me every night. And the next morning, the reading was on humility. So, <laughs> That's like, fantastic. It's like it reminds me of the joke of the Irish drunk um, who was driving around, driving around uh, uh, the block, uh, trying to park his car in front of his favorite bar. And he says a prayer to the good Lord, saying, "If you, Lord, if you find me a a, a good parking spot, uh, I, I promise to go to church every Sunday." And all of a sudden, uh, a, a woman pulls her car out in front of him, and uh, he goes in and parks, and he says, "Oh, never mind, Lord, I just found one." <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, I still have to learn humility, I think, and uh, you know, I uh, it's 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 always a constant struggle. But uh, it, yeah. there's a good joke. But it's uh, it's uh, we all have our paths to to lead, and um, uh, there's silver linings, uh, as I said, with my uh, family, with my children, and uh, um, and my friends. And uh, I don't mind being that poster child. I, I don't mind being the guy that uh, had it all and. Uh, lost uh, most of it, uh, to be honest. Uh, it's, uh, I think there's lessons learned there for everyone, which is uh, why I appreciated this opportunity to do this podcast. Thank you so much. This was yeah. incredible, Dave. Getting your free Broker Lord t-shirt is easy. 
Subscribe to the podcast and review it online. Then email us at Derek at BrokerLord.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at BrokerLord.com. Let us know your size and address and the t-shirt is yours. Supplies are limited, so get your t-shirt today. When I walked out of the office in Chicago after interviewing Dave, a thought popped in my head. Does he really want me to use all the audio that he just gave me detailing um, his triumphs and his failures? Um, Dave was so honest uh, to a fault on you know exactly what happened, the mistakes he made, and you know how it's cost him and his family. Um, but Dave has truly learned a lesson in humility. If you talk to him now, um, you know if he used to be arrogant or cocky or all those things, you just don't get a sense of that. Um, you know, sitting in his office talking to him, it's it's like a person who's gone through a tragedy and they really have gone through all the stages of grief. And they've done the things that they needed to do, learn the lessons uh, to earn true humility. I also thought it was interesting how uh, Dave's favorite deal was the one that actually cost him his fortune. Um, and those are kind of contradictory statements, but they're somehow they ring true when you listen to him say that. That those those hotels that are 20 stories tall and they're still standing in Chicago, he's still proud of those. Um, and he should be. Um, you know, he found another niche. He just leveraged it too high. Um, it sure does make me think as I add properties to my portfolio, you know, not to get super aggressive towards the end of my career or not to add such a large property that if it should go wrong, it costs me all of the work that I've done for the past 20 years. So thanks for joining me for another episode of the Broker Lord podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share it with your friends. I'm Derek Walchek, and this is the Broker Lord Podcast.